This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Dr. Chris Miller, a Gene Kirkpatrick visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and an associate professor of international history at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Roger and Chris discuss his new book, Chip War, the fight for the world's most critical technology. Dr. Chris Miller, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Now you're the Gene Kirkpatrick Visiting Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, known in Washington, D.C. as AEI, and Associate Professor of International History at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. But you're here today not because of any of that, but because in October, the book you've been working on for quite some time called Chip War, uh, will be out for everyone to buy. Uh, and this has been a, a quite an undertaking and an amazing, amazing book, which we're excited uh, to discuss today. So we'll start with the basics, Chris. What are semiconductors and why do Americans need to care about them? Anything that relies today on computing power has a semiconductor or often several semiconductors inside and that semiconductor is a piece of silicon usually that has lots of tiny electrical switches called transistors carved into them. A advanced semiconductor will have millions or in some cases billions of transistors and transistors are tiny electrical circuits that switch on and off, on and off. When they're on they create a one, when they're off they create a zero and this is the way that all of the ones and zeros undergirding all computing are actually created. And so if you think of software today, it's just strings of, of ones and zeros, and all of these ones and zeros are represented by electrical circuits. And to represent all of the um, all of these digits, we need lots and lots of transistors, which is why advanced semiconductors have millions or billions of these carved into them. Um, and as a result of our demand for computing power, we've now created more transistors than any other manufactured device in human history. And Say that year, one more time. We have created more transistors than any other manufactured device in human history. Give us a sense of scale, like kind of like, how much is that? Well, the numbers are really mind boggling. There are more transistors created every year than there are cells in the human body. Uh, just for one device, take the, the main chip uh, in an iPhone, we'll have uh, created uh, over a quintillion uh, transistors just for that one chip. And that's there you go. I was, I, we have a drinking game. Actually, we don't, but if we did, it would be how many times, if at all, Chris Miller would say quintillion. That's like how many zeros are behind quintillion? That'd be 18 zeros behind it. The, the numbers are, are really mind boggling. And that's just for one chip in one device. Um, so there's there's really nothing that compares to the number of transistors that we produce. I mean, if you look at the number of cars that are produced a year, it's many orders of magnitude uh, uh, lower. Uh, and so making transistors is really the most impressive and complicated manufacturing process ever. So uh, if we have things in our life that need to be smart, they need to be computing, right? And there's very little now <laughs> from the... I don't know, a scale in your bathroom to certainly your iPhone or your car, they all have to be smart, which means they're computing. And you're telling me to compute, you need these semiconductors. And these semiconductors, what they're essentially doing is just converting from one to zero, one to zero, which is actually brings life to this to the software that people are coding. You haven't used the word coding, but coders essentially 
are just going ahead and 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 doing this amazing work with a with this a series of ones and zeros. We're probably producing more ones and zeros than we are um, uh, chips, though, right? Or or that's right. A lot more ones and zeros than we are chips. And and if you think of where do these where do these chips uh, where are they put? You know, they're put in computers, obviously, and smartphones, but also in almost any device with an on-off switch today will have a semiconductor inside of it. So take your car. Your car probably has dozens, if not hundreds, in some cases, of semiconductors inside. And that's to do things like manage the fuel injection into your engine or to move the seat up and uh, down or back and forth if you have power seating. Uh, and as a result of the pervasiveness of our demand for computing power, even for pretty simple tasks inside of your car, the typical person will uh, come into contact with many hundreds of semiconductors every single day without being uh, aware of it at all. Fascinating. And, and, and the reality is, is that unlike some things that are mass produced and scaled, which semiconductors are, these are really complicated things to make and manufacturing them is the type of thing that requires kind of high end advanced manufacturing precision. So it's not like the more we use them, the easier it gets to make. In fact, your book tells a story of how it just gets more and more complicated. And I hear, I mean, M O R E as opposed to M O O R E, which actually figures heavily in the book in terms of that. You got of the miniaturization, making them smaller, getting more transistors, uh, transistors in these chips has been, has been the race. Tell, tell me more about that. And did I get that correct? Yeah, that, that's right. The, the first integrated circuit that was commercially available in the early 1960s had four transistors on it. Uh, and so today we've got a billion or more transistors on each chip. And the only way that's been possible is by shrinking transistors over, over time. And so today, the smallest transistors that we can mass produce are around half the size of a coronavirus. Uh, and they're produced with almost perfect accuracy by the billions and billions. Half the size of coronavirus. Uh, we, we talk about this generally in, the, in, in nanometers, right? That's right. That, that's like roughly like three nanometers or less. What's, what's the, how many nanometers are we talking about? Well, the 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 way we refer to the, the size of chips today is in in nanometers. In reality, it sort of depends on which angle you're measuring them by, but at the very least, dozens of nanometers, um, and, and nanometers a billionth of a meter. So we're talking about uh, devices that are far smaller than a human hair, for example, um, microscopic, uh, smaller than a mitochondria in, inside of a human cell. The, this the size is almost impossible to get your head around. It's so small. So this nanotechnology keeps it small, lets you put it in everywhere um and it's obviously this is highly complex and as you outline super expensive and in one of the storylines throughout is where do you make these things and what does it take and maybe we'll get into later on not only what it takes to kind of have a uh, a factory or a fab for a semiconductor but the building of the tools all the different pieces to get these things become kind of critical nodes you know taking a step back from all of this and I want to jump to kind of contemporary issues and, and how we're seeing uh, the chip war, right? Cause interesting that's, it's not just chips you're deriving, but the war over them and why you use that nomenclature I want to get to, but it's, it's almost like there's so many points of f like failure here where you could just go off. And we, we saw that in part uh, during, you know, the pandemic and, and how we had a couple of things go on as a result of the pandemic that, we couldn't get our chips, right? 
That's right. And if you think of the, the precision required, you can understand why there are so many potential points of failure. And, and to make transistors this small has required that level of precision, not just in the manufacturing process, but in all of the tools that you mentioned needed to make chips. And so there are a, a small number of firms that are capable of making the tools needed to make chips. And these tools themselves are extraordinary achievements of engineering um, involving some of the flattest mirrors humans have ever made, the most powerful lasers. And as a result of this complexity, it's also very, very fragile. Uh, and as a result at risk of geopolitical shock if uh, in case something goes wrong. Which has happened over the past couple of years as uh, Americans have learned you can't get your car because they're waiting for those chips. I mean, that's really hidden home uh, to, to many Americans. I want to get to geopolitics in a second, but I need to learn more about you, Dr. Chris Miller. You're at American Enterprise Institute. You're at Fletcher. You're, you got this humanities background, as best I could tell, but yet you got hooked on chips. Explain to us how you landed and conquered, for anybody who reads this, you've conquered this story, Chris. How did you arrive? What got you here? What was what what brought you into the world of chips? I got interested in the question of missile guidance computers. And it really came out of my study of the history of the Cold War, where there was a, a technological puzzle in the Cold War, which is this that the US and the Soviet Union could both make nuclear weapons, they could both make rockets that sent people into space, but only the US could make computing power effective. And so the US shot ahead of the Soviet Union over the course of the missile race during the Cold War because it could make more, uh, better, more accurate missiles than the Soviet Union could. And I wanted to understand why was that? And if you dig into what went right in the US and what went wrong in the USSR, it was that the US had the ability to manufacture computing power at uh, a rate that improved dramatically every single year, whereas the Soviets totally failed. And that was important in economic terms for all the reasons that you can easily understand, but it was also crucially important for military purposes as well, because over the last 60 years, one of the key drivers of the semiconductor industry and of demand for chips has been the military's need for smarter systems themselves. And so as I began digging into this history and the military importance of semiconductors, I began to see uh, really striking parallels to the present competition between the US and China over the future, not only of computing, but also the race to apply computing to next generation military systems. I, I want to talk about that. But Chris, you know, here at the Reaganism podcast, we generally believe that, you know, President Reagan won the Cold War. Now, Chris, are you, are you saying that it was microelectronics that won the Cold War? Is that what I hear you saying? Can we reconcile the two? Statement. <laughs> Say that again. <laughs> you know, I, I think actually, um, I, I think in, in a lot of ways, the microelectronics revolution made possible the defense systems that really drove the arms race and and were impossible for the Soviet Union to replicate. If you look at what really made Soviet defense planners deeply fearful, especially in the 1980s, was the new systems the US was bringing online that the Soviets couldn't replicate, like long-range uh, accurate missiles that had such advanced computers in the nose of the missile, they could uh, recognize the land they were flying over and hit their targets accurately. The Soviets never had that capability. And even today, I'll just give you one data point, even today, the Russian Air Force in its war in Syria, now been there for eight years, seven or eight years, 90% of the bombs they've dropped have been dumb bombs, unguided bombs, because they're still so far behind in their ability to adapt computing power for military purposes. So we're getting to the geopolitics right there. Your book does a great job uh, talking about how the, the Soviets 
kind of recognize they're behind in microelectronics. And ultimately, that's when they realized that even though they outnumbered the U.S. in terms of tanks and uh, aircraft, it ultimately didn't matter. And people like Bill Perry, former Secretary of Defense, and earlier uh, had senior uh, roles in engineering, the Department of Defense, knew that this was the way to kind of work the offset strategy to our advantage, which, which you do a great job of outlining uh, in your book. But let's talk about today contemporary issues because – Let's set the scene. All right, you you begin your book uh, by telling the story of the US, USS uh, Mustin. Maybe I'm mispronouncing. I don't know if it's Mustin or Mustin, and uh, COVID and what's going on in the South China Sea. So you explain what the significance is of having the U.S. Navy go through the Taiwan Straits to demonstrate that these are international waters and are not waters essentially owned by the Chinese Communist Party. And the significance there is not only for, you know, the free people of Taiwan, but actually for microelectronics and semiconductors. Tell us more about why you chose to begin your story with the U.S. Navy having its presence in the Straits of Taiwan. Again, this is before Nancy Pelosi decided to take her congressional delegation to Taiwan. You were writing about this. This is 2020. That's right. And and over the past decade, Taiwan has assumed an importance in the chip industry, and as a result, an importance in the global economy that you really can't underestimate. Around 90% of the most advanced processor chips built today are manufactured in Taiwan. Taiwan's got chip-making capabilities that no one else in the world can replicate. And as a result, the security of Taiwan is not only a question of geopolitical importance, so it certainly is a question um, that's relevant there, but also it's a question of technological importance because all of the devices that we rely on, from smartphones to PCs to data centers to cell phone networks, couldn't operate without chips produced in Taiwan, chips that can only be made today in Taiwan. And so when you look at the, the tensions in the Taiwan Straits and China's ambitions to reassert control over uh, Taiwan, you realize this isn't simply a question of uh, China's growing um, ambitions on the world stage, but it's also a question of the future of technology. Because if, if Taiwan were to have its independence be compromised or its ability to, um, to integrate with uh, US tech companies compromised by uh, China's growing power, that would have really profound effects for U.S. firms. And, and more than that, if there were to be a war in the Taiwan Straits, the entire global economy would face disastrous consequences because we'd take a decade to rebuild the capacity to produce semiconductors that Taiwan currently has. So when you think about President Xi you know, and, and China and the Chinese Communist Party and, and their objectives to dominate this space, they understand not only is it the kind of key to having economic supremacy, but as you've outlined just a little bit earlier, it's, it's military supremacy. It all resides in getting these chips for precision munitions or to have, you know, uh, the, the, the best in class um, mobile telephone, right? You know, the, the, the iPhone or whatever the future will be. And so that's right across their strait, what the Chinese Communist Party views as part of their sovereign territory. And they know that the United States is equally reliant and using uh, these semiconductors, at least for its, you know, commercial products. Some of our military intelligence products leverage it, but actually, it was what maybe we'll get into uh, not quite as much as as you might think, or 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 they should. 
But before we go there, now that we're talking about Taiwan and centrality in semiconductors, Chris Miller, author, I should note again, of Chip War, how did we get to a place where you have one country, one company, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing co uh, Company, uh, affectionately called TSMC, going forward on this podcast, how do we land in just one place to produce this stuff? And why isn't there someone else, some other company else around the world that can do what they are doing? There are only a small number of companies that are really plausible competitors to TSMC. Samsung in South Korea is close behind TSMC, though has uh, vastly less production capacity. Uh, Intel in the United States used to be ahead of TSMC in terms of its manufacturing technology, but has since fallen behind. The reality, though, is that in the semiconductor industry, because the technology is so complicated and so expensive, there are huge economies of scale, which means that at every part in the supply chain, you'll see one or two firms play a really dominant role in the market. And so in many parts of the process, many of the steps needed to make semiconductors, those are US firms that dominate. Look at the software needed to design chips or the tools needed to actually produce chips. But in terms of manufacturing, TSMC has been able to develop the best technology. And therefore, it's become the producer of choice for chip design firms. And because the economies of scale uh, uh, benefit firms that grow very rapidly, TSMC has managed to uh, develop this really extraordinary position of power at the center of the semiconductor supply chain. And but you're getting you're getting smaller and smaller, more complicated manufacturing. And there's this one company that figures out how to always stay ahead of the curve and nobody else could figure out kind of an economically business sustainable way to do that. That's right. And if you think of what does it take to make an advanced semiconductor manufacturing facility, it costs $20 billion. It takes expertise that you can only find in a very small number of places because you need people trained to the utmost in very uh, specific and obscure disciplines. Uh, it requires knowledge of how to bring together a really complicated set of materials and chemicals and tools. And this is something that once you've developed, it becomes very hard for others to displace you. So I got two questions. Who is Mars Chang? How did he kind of land back in Taiwan after growing up, at least professionally, in the United States and some of our most important uh, academic institutions and companies. Relatedly, this all started in the United States. This Silicon Valley truly was because they, they invented the semiconductor there. It was all here, and then it left. Unfair question because the book goes into this at length, but as best as you can, tell us the story of how we lost it and why a guy like Morris Chang picked it up and took it to Taiwan. Yeah. So Morris Chang is, is one of the most interesting, I think, business people um, of the last century. He was born, as you say, in mainland China before the communists took power. Uh, he fled after uh, after Mao Zedong did take power and ended up as a student at Harvard uh, at a time when he was the only Chinese student in his class. Then he transferred to MIT uh, to study engineering. And after finishing MIT, uh, worked at a, a couple of electronics companies before being hired at Texas Instruments, which at the time was 
sort of the coolest startup of its yeah. day. I mean, when reading the book, I'm like, they make calculators, and then you realize they were the coolest startup of the day, leading edge and all this stuff. And so Morris Chang at Texas Instruments builds the semiconductor industry um, from almost nothing. He starts on a manufacturing assembly line, becomes known for a unique knack at figuring out which specific manufacturing processes will work best, uh, gets rapidly promoted uh, to the point where in the 1970s, he's one of the uh, leading executives at TI, which is one of the biggest chip companies in the world. And at the time, PI uh, was looking to open up some assembly facilities in Asia. Uh, they did all their manufacturing at the time in the US, but assembly was very um, labor intensive. And so there was an economic rationale to actually do your assembling chips or so gluing chips to their package uh, in Asia. And uh, Morris Cheng had a couple of former classmates who were from Taiwan and recommended checking out Taiwan as a place to assemble chips. And he'd actually never been to Taiwan before. He was from mainland China. Um, it's the Hong Kong area, right? He was born in Ningbo, but grew up in Hong Kong during World War II. Uh, moved around a, a fair amount, actually, as a as a child. Um, and then TI made a horrible error. They passed him over uh, as CEO in the 1980s. And so he left TI uh, looking for something new, looking to figure out what was next. And the Taiwanese government, who'd gotten to know him because he'd invested there as a TI executive, offered to give him a blank check to help Taiwan build its own semiconductor industry. And so since he was out of a job in Silicon Valley, he said yes. Tell us more about Taiwan and the government plucking this guy up and saying, we're going to make a huge bet on semiconductors. I mean, that, you know, we talk about industrial policy, right? Where governments make bets and whether that's efficient for, for the markets and, and the like, I mean, wow, this one really paid off. It clearly wasn't obvious when they, when they made this move on, on, on you know, on Morris um, Chang, right? That's right. And I think Taiwan had a couple of things that made its, its leadership unique at the time. So first off, uh, one of the key officials in Taiwan who was leading this effort was a guy named K.T. Lee, who was trained as a nuclear physicist, um, and had a, a sort of unique understanding of where science and technology was heading in a way that very few economy ministers in the world might. And he recognized that there was a growing trend of electronics manufacturing uh, and that Taiwan had some reason to think that it could begin to play a big role in the industry uh, by trying to attract U.S. firms and Japanese firms to invest in Taiwan. And so he bet very heavily on semiconductors and on Morris Chang personally uh, to establish the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company in 1987. And it was really thanks to a, a small number of visionaries like him that Taiwan had this uh, investment uh, in a very early stage that made it possible for more thing to build this company. Okay, surely the story of semiconductor prowess and certainly the, the fabrication of semiconductors isn't just about one person who one U.S. company failed to make a CEO. What were some of the other things that eventually led to where we are today, where the manufacturing of the most sophisticated semiconductors I mean, you have this amazing graphic in your book, you know, where that East Asia essentially produces it all with a very small, a much smaller percentage kind of West 
<laughs> the Western world, whether Europe or, or the United States. What's the other big storyline or storylines? I mean, you, you have Intel, uh, which, of course, made a big bet on working with Microsoft and had their chips in, you know, personal computers. That was huge until personal computers were replaced, for the most part, by phones, smartphones, and other things. What, what else happened where the U.S. kind of lost its footing in this space? There were a couple other trends that were happening simultaneous. One was that building and operating semiconductor manufacturing facilities, fabs, is very environmentally uh, damaging in some ways. And so actually there's a number of super fund sites in Silicon Valley where the some of the earliest uh, fabs uh, were established. And today, obviously, there are much better procedures in place not to allow toxic chemicals um, to spill out. But the reality is making semiconductors requires uh, a, a lot of obscure and actually quite explosive chemicals. And so environmental regulations in the U.S. made it more expensive. Uh, and so countries that had uh, more lax environmental regulations had an easier chance to attract manufacturing. That was one facet. Two was that it got more and more expensive to actually build chips. As the technology required became more sophisticated, the cost of building a fab went higher and higher. And so many firms in the U.S. Uh, accurately realized that they could have a better business model if they designed chips and then outsource the manufacturing to someone else. And so you have a, a number of very successful firms in the US like Nvidia or Qualcomm or AMD that today uh, have great businesses around designing chips, which is the cheaper part of the task, and then outsource the manufacturing to TSMC. And, and there was a strong commercial logic uh, to do that. Um, we can talk about the national security implications later, but uh, the, the business logic was very much to focus on the highest value add, highest margin part of the process, which was the design rather than the manufacture. And the third factor was that a number of governments in East Asia, uh, not only Taiwan, but also South Korea and Japan, wanted to break into the chip industry. They didn't know how to do it in terms of chip design, but they correctly realized that they could plow government capital into chip manufacturing, write pretty big checks for the companies involved, and thereby make it more cost-effective to build new facilities in, uh, in East Asia. And so when you add up the environmental regulation side of the story, the fact that Asian governments were subsidizing the capital investment, plus the reality that Silicon Valley firms were focusing more on design than manufacturing because it was simply more profitable to do so, from the 1980s up to the present, we've had a pretty steady shift in manufacturing capacity offshore towards East Asia. Great answer. So here we go. This microcosm of globalization playing out on what seems to be the most critical node in the economy uh, of, of, of the past 20 years and, and best we could tell of the, of the future. We're more dependent on these things than we ever were before. Uh, but yeah, if the margins are going to be better on design and manufacturing costs a lot, and you have to, you know, fight uh, regulators. And then, yeah, you got other countries across the world where they're seeing huge subsidies the kind that the United States government would never provide, then you're going to see this divorce between design and manufacturing. So uh, Oren Cass, a uh, real uh, provocative thinker, has made an argument that when you separate manufacturing from design, I'm sure others have done the same, where you separate intellectual, the IP from the manufacturing, eventually the IP will follow the manufacturing, Chris Miller. That 
at some point you won't be able to kind of harness all of the IP because the manufacturing will dictate its own IP and generate its own IP and ev eventually displace um, where the IP originally came from. You're nodding. Do you agree with that? Does the story of semiconductors reinforce that point of view? You know, or are we still witnessing the story play out? We're still witnessing it play out. I would say. I think if you if you look at TSMC, what you'll what you'll find is a company that has extraordinary R and D capabilities, um, and that is a is one of the world's most valuable companies precisely because they can do things that no one else can do. So this is not a sort of simple story of we're outsourcing the simple stuff, the cheap stuff, and doing the complicated stuff at home. However, I think it's also the case that although manufacturing of chips themselves has been offshored, it's it's still the case that the U.S. plays a uh, central role in the chip industry when you look at design, when you look at software, and when you look at the manufacturing tools that companies like TSMC need to make chips. So I, I, I look at the chip industry as, a, as an example of the way that uh, manufacturing can actually stay in the U.S. if you look at the machine tool side, even though it's gone offshore in terms of uh, the fabrication. And, and the machine tools are in some ways just as complicated as the actual fabrication process. So I, I think Warren Cass is, is right in some parts of the industry, but um, overall, this isn't a story of the U.S. losing expertise because the U.S.'s role in the industry is in some ways as central as ever. It's just this one quite important part of the process has been offshored to a island that happens to be a geopolitical hotspot. If it had been offshored to Ireland uh, or to Denmark, I'd be a lot less concerned. Well, so let's talk about, here, here's your graphic. East Asia produces 90% of all memory chips, 75% of all processor, parenthetically, logic chips, and 80% of all silicon wafers. And, and East Asia, for those who don't have the map in their head, that's Korea, that's Taiwan, that's China. Okay, and it also includes a little bit of uh, uh, Singapore as well. National security. This is obvious to be a huge vulnerability for our economy, let alone military systems, which we can discuss in a little bit, that we are so dependent on one region of the world where that region is the home of our peer competitor, right? Our adversary uh, in, in China. And any form of blockade or any type of, of military aggression risks losing that key node in the uh, supply chain so critical to our economy. You, you mentioned in the book, Chris, some of it we learned about this. We all absorbed this as a result of COVID and some unfortunate fires that also happened around that time. Just go into, give me your best anecdote, which captures the vulnerability of this supply chain and how it could, in a short order, really just disrupt our economy and, and impact people's lives in, in this disruptive fashion? Well, I think the most extraordinary data point on the semiconductor shortage that we've lived through over the past two years is that during the years of peak shortage, 2020 and 2021, both of those years saw almost double-digit growth in the number of chips produced. There was a, a shortage despite there was but there was extraordinary growth in the number of chips produced because demand outstripped supply. So we faced a, a shortage that caused $200 billion to damage the auto industry alone, despite having growth in the industry. Now, imagine if Taiwan's fabs would be knocked offline and we had 
33% or so of processor chip capacity disappear overnight. Imagine the economic implications of that. It'd be measured in the trillions of dollars and it would take years, if not longer, to- the 21st century version of the dark ages. Literally, we just go dark. Yeah, I mean, if you think of, of smartphones, I think we would struggle to produce almost any smartphones for at least a year after Taiwan was knocked offline. Similarly for cell phone infrastructure, Cell phone towers are stocked full of semiconductors, many of which are made in Taiwan. Uh, you can go on and on through uh, any sort of tech product or any sort of manufactured good that turns on and off because they all have some sort of chip inside. So let's just get in the head of Steve Forbes, right? Apple making the iPhone, smart person, understands his supply chain for what is essentially the engine of, of that Apple stock, right? Why is he relying on, on semiconductor supply chain that resides in Taiwan or East Asia, even if you're getting it elsewhere? I mean, this is a huge vulnerability to the most valuable company in the world. Well, I think there's two ways to answer that question. One is that, perhaps many corporate leaders don't have the the right time horizon or the sensitivity to the risk of geopolitical shocks that they ought to, which I think is the case. And when you think about how chief executives make decisions, the, the risk of war is something that's hard to estimate. And so often just get estimated at zero uh, when they're making their models. I think that's something we can discuss. But second, for a company like Apple, which needs a whole lot of tips at the most cutting edge technological nodes, there's no other option. There's no other option that they can turn to. You have a story in your book how Forbes wanted to have Intel do this for him. And and Intel, in retrospect, made the terrible mistake of saying no. It, you know, Intel could have been the 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 chip for the iPhone that it was for the Microsoft personal computer. But why did they just say, okay, we'll we'll, we'll look elsewhere to China? I mean, this is a, a company whose market cap is, you know two plus trillion dollars, they could they could build this on their own if they wanted to, particularly if it meant that they would be a year plus of not being able to have any new iPhones just, you know, open to the market. Well, I think if you look at the complexity of, of building chips for even a company like Apple, which is an extraordinary company with all the resources in the world, starting from scratch, building up a chip making facility is a brutally expensive, uh, prospect that might end up not working in the end, which is why there's very, very few examples of companies uh, building their own chips from scratch. A growing number of companies will try to design their own chips, but they'll turn to TSMC or Samsung or one of the small number of uh, companies called foundries, which make chips for other customers uh, to actually produce them. And the number of chip foundries in the world that have any sort of scale is very, very small. There are two in Taiwan, one in China, one in the U.S., and that's basically it. So it's like it's like five. That's right. That's right. And of those five, only really two can claim to produce the most advanced ships. That would be TSMC and South Korea's Samsung. Wild. I mean, you think about these companies where every pensioner is putting their their pennies and and riding, you know, investing in them so it could take care of them in their future and their years of retirement perhaps give something to the next generation and you have it all, you know, re reliant on Taiwan 
producing these chips at a moment where you have China looking to annex, occupy, disrupt, you know, unclear what the, what they'll plan to do. So let's let let's move to that right now. Chris, what's your best assessment of what Xi and the Chinese Communist Party plans to do vis-a-vis Taiwan and more broadly vis-a-vis semiconductors and chips? What's what's the what's the plan? We have a, just as context for it. We had a, a former commander of Indo-Pacific Command um, who said there's a five-year window, uh, and this was in 2021, I believe. Maybe you got it wrong, 2020, um, where he thought China would take Taiwan. What's the, what's the play? You know, I, I don't think Xi Jinping has a a plan per se to take Taiwan or a date in his head that he's committed to moving on. But I think it's undeniable that the military balance has moved dramatically in China's direction over the past decade, in part because China's been building up, in part because we haven't been. And as a result, if she gets in a position in the future where he looks at the balance of forces and says, I think I can do it, that I think is a plausible scenario that we ought to be very, very worried about. And and to make that even more plausible, China's trying to um, to gain independence from its reliance on the U.S. and the West in terms of technology. And right now, China is still quite reliant on U.S. technology for its most advanced goods. China today spends more money, for example, importing chips than it does importing oil. And the Chinese leadership is desperate to get out of this dependency and domesticate the technology for itself. Say that one more time. It's a great stat. You make a, a point that what what was once the way we talked about oil, now we talk about chips. China imports more chips. Say it. They spend more money importing chips than they, than they spend importing oil. Uh, and they realize that is their number one vulnerability. And when you talk about importing chips and spending money on it, does that include what they spend on tools and software and design? Is that all in one basket? Nope, that's just for chips. <laughs> they spend even more for uh, for tools, software, and design. And I mentioned those three pieces because, as you've outlined, that's where the United States has a comparative advantage right now. That's right. That's right. But even if you look at the, the chips that China is importing, they're importing, to a substantial extent, chips from, say, Taiwan, that are actually designed by U.S. firms or produced by U.S. machine tools. So the U.S. has a lot of control over China's ability to access chips, even if they're produced by a third country. Let's keep on pursuing this for a couple more minutes. Uh, fascinating. In some respects, you could have a strategist come out and say, listen, we don't have to worry about this. China's never going to go ahead and occupy Taiwan because they are too dependent, their economy and their prosperity is is too dependent on the chips from Taiwan, but also the design, the tools, and the software that they get from elsewhere around the world, in, including the United States. So we're almost in this moment of, you know, 21st century chips version of mutually assured destruction. Mad. Does that resonate with you, Chris? I think if you believe that Xi Jinping's number one goal is to grow the size of the Chinese economy or to maximize Chinese living standards, that probably holds true. But I don't think the lesson of 2022 is that uh, that the world's dictators generally tend to maximize the size of their economies or focus on living standards. And there were lots of people who said as late as February 23rd of this year that 
Vladimir Putin will never go to war in Ukraine precisely because the economic costs would be too disastrous. And now we're seven months in, the Russian economy is contracting dramatically. Russian living standards have fallen substantially. The energy industry uh, faces deep challenges, and yet the Russians are doubling down. And so I worry a lot about what sort of briefings the Chinese intelligence agencies actually deliver to Xi Jinping, how detached they might be from reality. And I think if you look at Chinese policy over the past couple of years, especially with the, the zero COVID policy that they've pursued for two years now at the expense of uh, China's economy, I don't think there's a lot of good evidence that Xi Jinping is focused on his economic aims. I think instead he's focused on political control and making China a greater power on the world stage. And as a result, I don't take that much comfort from the fact that China would suffer economically from invading Taiwan if that's not what she's actually focused on. Okay, so I want to talk about Russia, Ukraine, which you just raised. But before we go there, there I guess there's a flip side where you, you could imagine someone's briefing Xi Jinping and saying, hey, if we go in, now's our window because the United States and the allies won't want to stop us or can't stop us. We can go in there. We can then take control of TSMC, keep that place operating. I mean, you know, you, in in Ukraine right now, you get the nuclear plant operating, right? Which gets a lot of attention. Well, let's do the same thing with the the fab, right? We'll keep on producing them, but we will go ahead and incorporate that in our geopolitical play and exact the cost in the rest of the world in exchange for getting the world's most sophisticated chips. You're going to give us the secret to design, the secret to tools, the secret to software, heavily discounted, and just bring it all over. Is that compelling, Chris? I think if the Chinese believe they can take control of TSMC as a functional facility, they're wrong. The semiconductor manufacturing facilities are the most complex, require the most precision, uh, and any sort of uh, military activity in the vicinity is likely to disrupt uh, the, their ability to operate. Moreover, TSMC's personnel might well not stick around in case the Chinese. Morris no, Chang's not sticking around in ta Taiwan when uh, the PLA invades. Well, I, I don't want to speak for him personally, but I will say that the number of TSMC employees that you know, did their PhD at Berkeley or Stanford and have very little interest in living underneath a, a PRC government is 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 substantial. So I, well, yeah. Well, I, that's interesting because uh, there has been this development uh, in the United States. So I need you to comment on, it, and then we'll talk about Russia, Ukraine, uh, in our in our remaining time where we have some form of industrial policy. The U.S. Congress recently passed the CHIPS Act to try to get some manufacturing here that has uh, incentivized TSMC, in addition to Intel, to build in the United States some of these facilities. And, and you know, I think the shovels are in the ground, or, or they will be soon. Uh, Arizona seems to be uh, the place of focus, but Ohio as well, and, and other states seem to be getting into it. Recognition that this huge vulnerability, both economically and from a national security standpoint, we can't just simply rely on design tools and software prowess. We need to have fabrication facilities here. Chris, it seems to be like a common sense response. What don't people understand about what it takes to actually have a second facility in the United States that kind of does what TSMC is doing in Taiwan or Samsung is doing in Korea? I think the key, the key driver of the, the CHIPS Act that was just passed is the reality that 
it's just more expensive to build manufacturing facilities in the U.S., especially when you've got the Chinese government pouring hundreds of billions of dollars into their own semiconductor industry. And their industry is still behind uh, technologically, but if they pour that much money in, they're going to get a response. The, you'll have firms begin to move facilities towards China unless the U.S. government uh, tries to counteract that. And I, the CHIPS Act, I think, is driven in no small part by the reality that China is subsidizing more than everyone. And if you want to deal with that, you've got to level the playing field for U.S. firms or for firms that want to produce in the U.S. Yeah, but this is one act, one point in time, you level the playing field for a year. As you point out in your book, within two, three years, you'll need another capital investment just to stay ahead. So what's the solution, Chris? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not the only uh, it's not the only part of the solution. I think it's got to be part of the plan. Simultaneously, the U.S. is restricting the ability of companies to transfer tools to China. So, for example, many of the manufacturing tools that you need to actually produce ships are U.S. designed or U.S. built, and it's getting harder to transfer the most advanced tools to China. That's well, the U.S. government is is restricting that trade. They're treating it like uh, a munition that you can't trade, you can't sell to China. Correct. That's right, and and China's interested in these technologies not only for commercial purposes but also to produce military goods. So let's talk about military goods, and you rightly raise Russia, Ukraine, and what we've learned. So here's the way I see it. Uh, uh, I love your 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 reaction and, and critique. You have the conventional power, the Russian military. You referenced Syria earlier. We're seeing it in Ukraine. Ukraine is benefiting from Western know-how, Western military capabilities, all of which are using chips, more sophisticated chips, from sophisticated encrypted command and control to sophisticated unmanned aerial systems or counter unmanned aerial systems uh, to these uh, rocket launchers that are, are, are precision guided and get and hit their target. The combination of those three things and perhaps other elements has shown that a small power Right, a modest power like Ukraine can hold off a mighty conventional power, and this is all because one country has a military that is behind in microelectronics, and another is benefiting from countries who are giving them systems that use them. Did I get that right? I think that's that's spot on. And Ukrainians have shown that when you combine precision munitions with the intelligence needed to find out where your adversary is and the communications to get information about targeting to your precision systems right away, all of which, as you say, depends on microelectronics, uh, you can do a lot of damage against a much larger force as the Russians started out, are no longer, but they started out as a much larger force. And because of that, I think people are beginning to realize that when we think about military power in the future, in 10, 20, 30 years' time, counting numbers of tanks or um, or numbers of airplanes is not the right way to think about it. It's can you acquire information? Can you process information? Do you have systems that can autonomously, in some cases, make decisions on that information? And the speed of transmitting that information is going to be as important as the uh, amount of firepower, say, that you've got to actually hit your target. And that's what Ukrainians are showing uh, with extraordinary efficacy. Uh, now, all of that is made possible uh, by U.S. technology, and it's that combination which is proving so tough for the Russians to respond so, to. So, so here's the kicker, Chris. I mean, you obviously, that was just a great exposition of how, you know, reinforcing your line that brawn is being replaced by brains, smart everything, you know, use of satellites, communications, intel informing intelligence and strike and all that, and the speed of it all. So then we have recent events, 
where Vladimir Putin's got his back against the wall, his conventional military is failing against what should have been uh, a country with, you know, no ability to counter his military. And he says, well, okay, I have a choice. I could double down and apply more treasure and blood and take more time, three things that you may not have, or I can go nuclear and introduce tactical nuclear weapons to the battlefield. Your book doesn't talk about the atomic age so much, but has the effect of semiconductors in the military domain now perhaps ushered in a new new era of the atomic age, basically, where nuclear weapons, which were kind of set aside as something that all sides agree they wouldn't use, are now being reintroduced because it's leveled this playing field uh, with such a low barrier to entry? You know, I think we'll have to see what Putin decides to do, though I'm I'm a skeptic that he's actually going to go the nuclear route. And I think what we've seen over the past seven months is a lot of threats, which now look, to be honest, like somewhat empty threats. And the reality is that the Ukrainians have been using conventional forces to degrade the Russian military uh, to the extent that I don't even think we should be sure that if Putin ordered nuclear usage that the Russian military would carry it out at this point. Um, so I, I, I doubt we're returning to a, a, a new era in which uh, nuclear power will, um, will play a, a predominant um, feature in, in warfare, certainly at the strategic level where you've got um, uh, the U.S. and China and Russia um, continuing to uh, develop and build uh, large-scale nuclear systems that will, that will persist. But in terms of battlefield nuclear weapons or tactical nuclear weapons, I don't know that we should see this as, as re-emerging in the, in the level of prominence that it had in the Cold War. And I think actually the evidence of the war in Ukraine is quite the contrary. That All right. Well, uh, we shall see. I kind of take a different view, but I'll have to debate it another time. Uh, tactical nuclear weapons to me seem to be um, where the Russians have invested and uh, it doesn't cost, doesn't take a lot of time, doesn't cost a lot more than they've already spent. And certainly uh, not blood on their side in the way that the conventional fight is challenging them, but uh, we'll have to do that in a round two with Dr. Chris Miller. Now we have to migrate to the all important lightning round where you show your prowess, not in semiconductors, but in Ronald Reagan, Chris, as a student of the cold war, which got you thinking about this subject, I am quite curious what your favorite Reagan book is your favorite Reagan speech or your favorite Reagan quote. My favorite Reagan. Well, I, I came away from this book thinking that, uh, that the focus on the arms buildup in the early 1980s was actually crucial to ending the Cold War, which is a matter of debate among historians. But when you look at the types of systems the U.S. was bringing online and the complexity uh, that they were able to to marshal and the fear that that struck in uh, in Soviet defense planners, I think it's really hard to argue, as many people still do, about whether, in fact, the Reagan arms buildup was a, a decisive factor in the Cold War. So Reagan ends up, I think, coming out of this focus on semiconductors as being really a, a crucial player uh, in the application of microelectronics on a large scale to military power. And so that, that's, the, that's the role he plays, I think, in this story. Dr. Chris Miller, thank you so much for being on the show. His book, Chip War. The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology will be available any place you could purchase a book in October. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me.
We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend. Thank you.